Next week, we're going to enter into a new series. Uh, we're going to be walking through the letters from Peter uh, in the New Testament, First and Second Peter. And so we're going to start that teaching series on Sunday morning, Lord willing, next week. And so if you're interested in, in beginning to, kind of like Eric was saying, read ahead and start uh, some of your own study, maybe grab some resources I think that would be great, uh, not only to get started, but as we go through that series, very prayerful that the Lord is going to uh, show us many great things and grow us uh, as we walk through those letters together. Today, though, I, I felt led to add a message to this kind of ongoing series that we have been doing for a couple of years. Uh, every now and then, this Life in Christ series, uh, this is the and the 14th message in that series, if you're interested in the other ones, they're on our website. You can go out and uh, look in the, the message, or the series engine out there, look up Life in Christ. You'll see all of these. Uh, but this is just an ongoing series that we do in which we're exploring different theological topics related to living as a Christian. And today we are going to talk about the grace that God has given us in the act of confession. What is confession, and why is it critical for us to actually engage in it as we battle against sin? I don't know what your uh, what you think of, what goes through your mind when you hear that term, but I am hopeful today that the Lord will show us from His Word what His purposes are in it, and why we should, as believers, be engaging in regular confession of sin. So to start, if you have a worship guide, we have some sermon notes. If you want to follow along, do the fill in the blanks, um, if that's helpful to you. We're starting with a definition about what is sin. And I realize that that is uh, perhaps uh, Christianity 101. Uh, if we were to walk around and ask a believer, do you know what sin is? We'd say, sure. Uh, but then if someone immediately said, can you define it for me? What would we say? How would we define sin? Um, and so, as always, when I define something, I don't mean that this is the absolute only right definition in the terms that I have and the, the way that I've ordered it, but I'm trying to give us a working definition to get started as we think through this together. What is sin? Sin is a turning away from God by violating His moral law in our behaviors, our attitudes, or our nature. Sin is a turning away from God by violating or rebelling against His moral law through the way that we act and behave, through our attitudes, the disposition of our life, the way we think or treat other people, in, even internally, and our very nature by what drives us, by what we're excited about. Now, God has given us a moral law. Most of us know that, you know, we probably know the Ten Commandments and we know throughout Scripture there's a moral law that God has given. But if we were to summarize that moral law, which we do here often, we we're reminded that Jesus was asked, give me the greatest commandment. That's what someone proposed to Jesus. And Jesus in response to that said, I'll give you the greatest commandment and I'll give you the next greatest commandment. He said, the greatest one is, love God with everything you have. Love God with everything you have. And then he said the second one, just like it, 
love other people as I've loved you. And Jesus went on to say that every other command of Scripture is summarized by these two. In other words, if you and I could perfectly love God and perfectly love people as Christ has loved us, we would never break any command. If we truly love God, we would not blaspheme Him. If we truly loved people, we would not lie or steal. Every possible moral law finds its summary in these two commands. Love the Lord with all you have. Love other people as Christ has loved you. And what I want us to understand this morning as a church is that every violation of those laws, every time we do something, that violates our love for God or our love for other people, it is a turning away or a rejecting of God. We are turning from Him and we're turning to something else. We're rejecting Him in favor of something else. It may be a sin of commission where we go along with something that God has said that we should not do, or it may be a sin of omission where we know the right thing to do, but we don't do it. And either way, when we sin, we are violating God's law, but we're turning away from Him. And the reason I'm stressing that is because you and I, we break laws all the time, right? I, I, I'm just going to guess that nobody in this room has ever gotten in bed at night and thought, I, I can't sleep because I know I went too fast on the highway today. I know it was a 65 and I went 72 or 102, whatever the case may be. And I can't sleep. We break laws all the time. We don't think anything about that. What we must understand as Christians is that when we break the laws of love, we are rejecting God. We are turning away from Him. It is not merely a law that we are ignoring. It is the God of those laws. What happens when we sin? When we do turn away, when we do reject God, when we violate His laws of love, what happens? We know the whole world is sinning, right? We know that. We know the unbelievers are sinning. And, and honestly, we get really aggravated at that. We get, we get angry. And sometimes, if we can just be honest, it's a little comical. Because we get really angry at people who don't know Jesus for acting like they don't know Jesus. We get really mad at people for not following God's laws who don't actually know God. And it's not funny, but we have to understand that the Bible even says, like, people who don't know God are going to live that way. And they need to come to know Christ. But what happens when the people who've already come to know Christ sin? What happens when we violate God's laws of love? And how you answer that question in your own heart, in your own mind, what happens when I sin? If you've ever actually stopped to think about it, or if you will do so today, or whenever you're listening to this, 
If you really think upon that question, the answer that you give will determine how you live and specifically how you respond when you do wrong. What you think of in your mind happens when you sin will determine whether or not you sin and how you respond when you do. I will quote the great theologian, Dr. Seuss's The Lorax, who asked a question, which way does a tree fall? And the answer was, a tree falls the way it leans. You and I fall into error the way that we lean. Some of us in this room, when it comes to how we respond to this question, what happens when I sin? The way that we lean is toward a debilitating condemnation of ourselves when we sin. We sin and our thought process is, God hates me. God is through with me. God has rejected me. And we get paralyzed in that debilitating condemnation of ourselves. And so what I want us to understand, first and foremost, what happens when a Christian sins, is let's talk for a moment about what doesn't happen. Number one, our position before God is unchanged. When a Christian sins, our position before God is unchanged. So what do I mean by that? If you have a Bible, if you will, go to Romans chapter 4. Paul is writing to the church in Rome, and Romans is one of the great theological books of the New Testament. It explains so much about salvation and how how that works both before and after we have come to know Christ. And in Romans chapter 4, verses 4 and 5, Paul says this, Now to the one who works, his wages are not counted as a gift, but as his due. And to the one who does not work, but believes in Him who justifies the ungodly, His faith is counted as righteousness. I want you, if you take notes in your Bible, underline, justifies the ungodly. Because we're going to come back to that in a moment. That word justify is, is legal language. You will see this in Scripture. So let's just do a little terminology defining again for a moment. When you see that word in the Bible, justify, that word means to be declared not guilty. If you were to go to traffic court over that 102 mile per hour violation you did, and the judge was to say, for whatever reason, there's not enough evidence against you, you are justified. He's saying, you're not guilty. And that legal language is used in the New Testament to talk about our standing before God as Christians. So what Paul is doing in these two verses is he's making a case. If salvation comes through works, if you and I need to work in order to be cleared of our guilt before God, then God is not actually giving us a gift. He's just giving us what we're due. If you have a job, you go work. 
And at the end of the week, your company sends you a check. They don't send you a check and you receive it and go, they're so nice to me. This is such a wonderful gift. No, you say, this is what they owed me. Don't actually think they gave me enough. If you approach salvation as I earn it, then God's not giving you a gift. God's just giving you what you think you're due. Paul then says, but if salvation is a gift, if it's a gift, then you must set aside your works and you must believe in God's work on your behalf. And you are justified, not by what you've done, but you're justified by your belief, your faith in what Christ has done. And that's how salvation actually works. And in the middle of this, we are giving a shocking, scandalous statement. God justifies the ungodly. And if you don't find that scandalous or shocking, I want you to picture a courtroom where someone is standing in that courtroom and they are accused of a crime and the evidence against them is undeniable. They did it. There is no doubt about it. But the judge looks at them and says, in spite of that evidence of your guilt, I am going to clear you of these charges. You are free to go. There's not a single person that would say, that's a good judge. That's a just judge right there. No, we would say that's a scandal. It's not a good judge at all. So how can God, the just judge of the universe, justify ungodly people? And the answer to that is summarized very well in 2 Corinthians 5.21, a verse that we would do well to memorize. For our sake, He made Jesus to be sin who knew no sin, so that in Jesus we might become the righteousness of God. The way God justifies the ungodly is through the work of Jesus. Because on the cross there was a great exchange where Jesus received our sin so that we might believe upon Him and receive His right standing before God. And that is called justification. And if you want to, if you want to know more about that, we did a whole sermon in this series on it, Life in Christ number nine from February of 2020, I believe. You can find that on our website. But for today, here's what I want us to understand. That when you have been justified by God, if you lost me in everything else I said, I hope you didn't because that was the evidence and that was the proof of what I'm about to say. But if you have been justified by God. Nothing changes that ever. God has made a legal declaration over your life. You are not guilty. I'm not guilty of every sin I've ever committed? Yes. What about the sins that I have not yet committed? You have been declared not guilty. Nothing changes that. Even when you sin. That declaration that He made over you is from the grace of Jesus covering every sin, 
in your life that you have committed, that you are committing, that you will commit. And nothing changes that. So when we ask, what happens when I sin? My position before God, your position before God is unchanged. You remain not guilty of any charge against you. You remain not guilty of any charge against you. Romans 8.1 There is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ. If you are in Christ, you are not condemned. You will never be condemned. No one can condemn you. The enemy of God cannot condemn you. Other people cannot condemn you. You are not guilty. And you remain a child of God, unconditionally loved by Him. Even when you sin, you remain a child of God, unconditionally loved by Him. That does not change. John chapter 1, verse 12, "...to all who received Him, who believed in His name, who believes in His work of justification on our behalf, He gives the right to become children of God." The whole world are not the children of God. Those who have believed upon Jesus are the children of God. And nothing you do changes that. If you're a parent in this room, you understand that. Your child can greatly grieve you. Your child can rebel against every rule that you have. It may be that your child can act so heinously that you have to separate from them. But you'll never stop calling them your child. You will love them. They will always be your son or daughter. And we're not better parents than God is. Nothing changes our position before Him. So if you lean toward paralysis and condemnation when you sin, if you lean toward the thought that when I do the wrong things... God is, is, He hates me, He's angry with me, He rejects me. You need to preach these truths to yourself. That you are justified, that you are His child. Nothing changes that. A true theologian, A.W. Tozer, said this, Through the virtue of Christ's atoning death, the cause of our banishment from paradise has been removed. We may return as the prodigal returned and be welcomed. And as we approach the garden, our home before the fall, the flaming sword is withdrawn because the keepers of the tree of life stand aside when they see a child of grace approaching. In Christ, you have access to God and will live eternally with Him. So if you lean to condemnation when you sin, preach those truths to yourself. Now, some of us lean the other way. The error that we would fall into is that we would take justification and we would use that as a license to sin. We fail to see sin for what it is. Treason against the Most High God. In other words, church, some of us, we don't take it seriously. We are amused by sin. We love to watch movies or listen to songs that glorify sin. 
we find it funny. We don't think about it. We don't talk about it. We don't care about it. But the Bible shows us that sin is serious and it's deadly even for the justified. So what happens when we sin? We know what doesn't happen. Our position before God is not changed. We're still His child. We're still loved unconditionally. But what does happen? First of all, our fellowship with God is disrupted. When you and I sin as believers, our fellowship with God is disrupted. First John, which is where we were this morning. If you're still there, if not, flip back and actually go to 1 John chapter 3 for just a moment. 1 John chapter 3, verses 21 through 24. John is writing. I want you to remember, this is John the Apostle John. Maybe the best friend of Jesus. Part of his inner circle. We went through all of the Gospel of John in the Jesus series a couple of years ago. John writes this later in his life and ministry. Beloved, if our heart does not condemn us, then we have confidence before God. Look at verse 22. And whatever we ask, we receive from Him because we keep His commandments and do what pleases Him. Let me read that again. We ask, whatever we ask, we receive from God because we keep His commandments and do what pleases Him. And this is His commandment, that we believe in the name of His Son, Jesus Christ, and that we love one another just as He commanded us. Whoever keeps His commandments abides in God and God in Him. And by this we know that He abides in us by the Spirit whom He has given us. John is teaching what Jesus taught him. If you have time, go back later and read John chapter 15. Read John 15, then come back and read 1 John 3, what we just read. And you will see that John is reteaching what Jesus taught him. Because in the Gospel of John, in John 15, Jesus talks about abiding. Abiding in Him. And He says, if you keep My commandments, you will abide in My love. And John is reiterating what he has heard. That you and I as believers can please God or displease God. Understand, our position doesn't change. Our relationship is never severed by sin. But it is possible for us to displease God. Not to the point of condemnation, but to the point that our relationship with Him, our fellowship with Him is disrupted. We please God and we abide in Him by keeping His commandments. When you and I, by the power of the Holy Spirit, obey, it is a pathway for us to please God and abide in Him. And John lays out the commandments and he summarizes them just like we just talked about a moment ago. Here's, here's the commandments. First of all, believe in the name of His Son, Jesus. In other words, trust in Jesus. Rely on Jesus. Love Jesus with all of your heart. And work out that love by loving others. It's the same summary of the law. Love Jesus. Love God with all of your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Love others as Christ has loved you. These are His commandments. And what we see then is sin disrupts abiding. Not to the point that it's severed, 
but to the point that it's disrupted. Sin disrupts our abiding. Go back to 1 John 1, what Eric read to us this morning. This is the message we've heard from Him and we proclaim to you. So we've heard this from Jesus. Now we're going to tell you about it. God is light and in Him is no darkness at all. If we say we have fellowship with Him, but we walk in the darkness, we lie. We don't practice the truth. But if we will walk in the light as He is in the light, then we have fellowship with one another. And inferred there is we have fellowship with God and we have fellowship with one another. And the blood of Jesus His Son cleanses us from all sin. I think John writes this for two reasons. Number one, he writes this to diagnose a problem that some people in the church had and some people that had separated themselves from the church over doctrinal disputes. He is diagnosing that some people who call themselves Christians are not actually Christians. And we really can't get away from that in Scripture. It doesn't matter what we call ourselves. It matters what God calls us. And so here's a litmus test. He says, if you say that you have fellowship with God, yes, I abide with God. Yes, I have a relationship with Him. Yes, God and I are close. But your life is lived repeatedly, ongoingly, without repentance, in darkness. Then John says, you're actually lying. You're lying to yourself and you're lying to others. You don't actually have fellowship with God at all. Works don't save us, but works are evidence of whether or not we're saved. And I think John writes this as a warning. Church, don't be deceived. Don't kid yourself. Ongoing, unrepentant sin will disrupt your fellowship with God and with each other. It's not just okay. If you've sinned and nothing bad's happening to you, you're not living in God's approval, you're living in His patience. Sin is not okay. And it disrupts our abiding. And it disrupts our relationships with each other. This is why some churches are in turmoil. This is why some families are in chaos. This is why some marriages are crumbling. Because of ongoing, unrepentant sin that disrupts our fellowship. What does that look like specifically? The Bible says when we sin as Christians and our fellowship with God is disrupted, we grieve the Holy Spirit. We grieve the Holy Spirit. literally means we bring the Holy Spirit to sorrow. Ephesians 4, if you read... A few verses in Ephesians 4, 29-31, you'll see Paul saying, Church, put away falsehood. Church, don't sin out of your anger. Christians, don't steal. Christians, do not let impure talk come out of your mouth. Believers, let bitterness be put aside. Believers, let wrath be put aside. Church, don't slander each other. Church, don't be unkind to one another. Church, don't be unforgiving to one another. And in the middle of all that, in the middle of all those verses, Paul says, don't grieve the Holy Spirit. Because when we do all of those things, we bring the Holy Spirit to sorrow. He is in us. 
But when we sin, we bring sorrow to the one who is in us that is sent by Jesus to lead us, that is sent by Jesus to instruct us and encourage us and help us. Now, does sin cause the Holy Spirit to depart? No. Because we're a child of God. But we are foolish to think that it has no effects on our lives. We're foolish to think that we can grieve the one who's supposed to instruct us and that not keep us from being instructed well. We're foolish to think that we can grieve over and over and over the one who's supposed to encourage us and we'll just be encouraged and not discouraged. When we sin as Christians, we lose effectiveness in kingdom work. We lose effectiveness in kingdom work. Jesus said, John 15 again, that our fruitfulness is dependent on abiding. If we want to have fruitfulness in our Christian lives, in our churches, we must abide. Apart from me, you can do nothing, Jesus says. So, if sin disrupts abiding, and abiding is the way that we're effective, then sin disrupts our effectiveness. Honestly, some of us as church leaders, some of us as servants of Christ, some of us as heads of our homes, we may be banging our head against the wall in frustration, wondering why God isn't moving. Why is God not making these things fruitful? And the issue could be our ongoing unrepentant sins. When we sin as believers, we invite the discipline of our Father. We invite the discipline of our Father. Revelation 3.19 says, those whom I love, I reprove and discipline. So be zealous and repent. Here's the reality. There is some discipline of God that we will not be able to avoid. There are certain trials that God has planned for us that He is going to use to draw out of us godliness. And He's going to use it to conform our lives more to Him. But I don't think that's true of every trial. I think some trials are avoidable because some discipline is avoidable if we would discipline ourselves in the power of the Spirit. And when we sin as believers, we do damage to our well-being. When we sin as believers, we do damage to our well-being. 1 Peter 2.11 This letter that we're going to be getting into, Lord willing, next week, or at least the introduction to it, Peter writes and says, Beloved church that I love, I urge you. I urge you as sojourners and exiles, people who this isn't your home, I urge you to abstain from the passions of your flesh, which wage war against your soul. Sin, the passions of our flesh, wages war against our souls, our spirits, and our very lives. I've been asked a couple of times in the last 12 months my stance on mental and emotional health issues. What, what do I think about that? Because there are churches or church leaders who have taught things like depression or totally faith-centered. So if you're depressed, you don't have enough faith, and you need to have more faith, you won't be depressed. And I reject that. don't believe that is accurate. I believe that while all issues we face are rooted in sin, because every problem we have 
comes from original sin, I do think there are very real emotional, mental health issues, just like there are very real physical health issues that that God, through His grace, would use professionals to help us deal with. But I'm not giving you full counsel if I don't share the other side of that coin, which is a Christian living in a pattern of unrepentant sin will not have a healthy emotional or mental disposition. And sometimes depression or mental or emotional issues are driven by Christians unwilling to repent of sin. And we have to look at that in our lives and understand both sides of that coin. Your life can even be physically impacted by a refusal to repent of sin. David suffered this. David in the Psalms had a time in his life where he just, he was not going to confess his sins to God. And he wrote about that later and said that God brought upon him physical ailments because of it. In the New Testament, Paul writes to the church in Corinth and he says, we talked about this at the Good Friday service. Some of you, like, you are taking, this is, this thing that you're doing, you're calling the Lord's Supper is not the Lord's Supper at all. Because some of you are rich and you're getting drunk and there's people in your church that are poor and don't have enough. You're mistreating one another. You're not loving one another. And he says, this is so serious. In 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verses 29 and 32, he says, this is why many of you are weak and ill and some have died. You can't get away from that. That there was a sin happening in Corinth that was so grievous to God in an unrepenting, unrelenting manner that Paul said some illness in this church is because of that. And he goes on to say, if we would judge ourselves truly, we would not be judged. If we would discipline ourselves, God would not have to discipline us. So go back to 1 John chapter 1, verse 8 and 10 again. We do damage to our well-being when we sin as Christians. John writes, If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we say we've not sinned, we make Him a liar and His Word is not in us. I'm sure we all know stories of church pastors who have fallen into sin. I know some personally. A pastor who was shepherding a thriving, what appeared to be thriving, growing church, found out to have been in secret sin, not for just a week or two weeks or a few months, but multiple years. And sometimes you look at situations like that and you think, how... How could that be? How could you be shepherding a church and be blind to that? How could you, how could you not see in what you're preaching? And I think John explains it. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves. Deception starts with us. 
Before we ever deceive anyone else, we start by deceiving ourselves. It's not really a big deal, we say. Yeah, I shouldn't be doing this, but look how well the church is doing. God can't be that mad at me. Look how well my business is doing. Look how well my life is going. He can't be that mad at me. I don't have sin. God understands. I'm justified. We start by deceiving ourselves. And then eventually, verse 10, we will even get to the point where we make God to be a liar. We'll read His Word and it will have no impact on us. It will be unaffected. This isn't really sin. I know what it says, but that's not really what it means. This isn't for me. I've spent some time on this because I think likely if we lean one of those two ways, we lean toward paralysis and condemnation or we lean toward flippancy and sin, my thinking is that most Christians live toward flippancy and sin. Both are very real. And either way, you need to preach the gospel to yourself. But church, hear me today. If we don't think sin's a big deal, if we're entertained by it, if we find it funny, if we ignore it, if we are harboring right now in our lives secret, ongoing, unrepentant sin, church, Christian, know that you may indeed be justified, but a day of reckoning is coming. God will not let you live in that secret, unrepentant sin for long. I said it earlier, you're not in His approval, you're in His patience. He is calling you to repent. He is calling you to turn. And He is giving you an opportunity to do that. And He does it through a very gracious gift. It is avoidable. We can live our lives in such a way that we don't harbor secret, unrepentant sin. Everything we just talked about is pretty heavy. That's the burden. Now let's look at the grace. The grace is confession. The grace is that God has given us a pathway out of secret, unrepentant sin, and it's called confession. 1 John chapter 1, verse 9. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves. That's verse 8. Verse 9. But if we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Confess. Well, I didn't really define it here, but confess means be transparent and be honest. Be transparent before God and others. Be honest before God and others. He will forgive us over and over again. When we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us and He cleanses us. Underline both of those words. He doesn't just forgive us, but He also works in us to cleanse our heart, which means confession strips sin of its influence. In your life, when you practice confession before God and others, it strips the influence of sin from your life. Some of us, we can't break free from that secret sin because we've not confessed it and we're not honest with other people that can pray for us. 
Confession strips sin of its influence. Confession brings to light what is hidden so that we can be healed. Let me tell you what the enemy will tell you. If you tell anyone about that, they will never look at you the same again. If you tell anyone about that, they will they will reject you. If you tell anyone about that, the church, they won't love you anymore. If you tell anyone about that, you won't be serving anymore. Why does He do that? Because He wants everything to stay in the dark. Because when it's in the dark, it's just you and that sin and condemnation. You bring it to the light through confession, and from that comes healing. Confession brings us to Christ. For the very first time to be saved, you confess your sins and ask for salvation. Confession also brings us to Christ over and over and over again, daily. It's a pathway to abiding. Confession is a pathway to abiding. So what does confession involve? I said earlier, I don't know what you think of when you hear that word. Maybe you pictured the Roman Catholic confessional where someone walks into a booth and we've seen that on television, they slide open the door, priest, father, I've sinned, and then they just roll off a list of things. Growing up, I thought that's what confession was. I don't know who taught me that or how I came to learn it, but I thought that every time I prayed, I needed to list every single sin that I had done since the last time I prayed. And not only is that pretty um, exhausting, but it also takes up your entire prayer life. And I think it undermines the doctrine of justification, which is not that to go to heaven you have to remember everything you've ever done, but that Jesus has covered you of your sin. But I do think confession is shown to us in the Bible, and it certainly involves talking about the things we've done wrong. I included this morning a picture from Nehemiah 9 in the gathering of God's people to worship through confession. And I I gave us this picture that we don't have time to walk all the way through, but I gave us this picture from Nehemiah 9 because I wanted us to see this picture of a corporate gathering that was for the purpose of confessing sin. And I wanted us to see some of the things that happen as this body of believers in the Old Testament were gathering together to confess sin. The first thing that we see is that confession involves a reflection on the character of God and His works. It involves a reflection on the character of God and His works. That's what the people in Nehemiah began to do. They began to talk all about the things God has done for them. How faithful God has been. How loving He has been. How He saved them and rescued them. How He brought them out of Egypt. How He provided for them manna. Like Anna was talking about earlier, being fed in the wilderness, how He did miracles, how He took their pursuers and cast them into the sea, how even their shoes didn't wear out, that He provided for them. Over and over, it talks about Nehemiah 9, all of the things that God has done. And then, in light of all that God has done, you see confession involving an admittance of sin and its patterns in their lives. You see that they began to confess an admittance of sin and its patterns in their lives. The very first of the service starts by them reading the book of the law 
Understand, you and I will never know what we're supposed to repent of if we're not in God's Word. Then when we're in God's Word and when we remember all that God has done and how faithful He is and what He's done in our life, and then we think about ourselves in relation to what God has done, we realize our sinfulness and we begin to admit that sin to God. That's what confession means. Confession, if you want to define it, it means to say the same thing. Confession is agreement. It's saying the same thing that God says. And in the New Testament, that word is used in multiple ways. Same word. You see it in the New Testament used to acknowledge God and His goodness. I confess God and His works and His goodness. You see it used to acknowledge our guilt. I confess my sin before God. And you see it used to acknowledge truth. I confess the gospel is real. I confess Scripture is real. And so the pattern in Nehemiah 9 in confession is you see the people saying, God, you're this and you did this, and God, in turn, I am this and I've done this. God, you are faithful, I am wicked. And God, that's been the pattern of my life. And as we do that, as we think about the character of God, and as we admit our own sin we began to see God's faithfulness in justifying the ungodly. God, how could You love me? You are so gracious, God. You are so kind. Because I have sinned against You. You have justified me, although I'm ungodly. And when we do that, confession then brings us to a humbling of ourselves, asking God for help. True confession will bring us to humble ourselves and ask God for help. True confession won't be, God, I'm going to do better. Because when we see the pattern, God, you're faithful, I'm wicked. God, you're faithful, I'm wicked. Just like the people of Israel, God, every time you give me prosperity, I forget and I sin again. God, every time you you do the one thing that I'm saying, God, if you'll do this, I'll be faithful. And then, God, you do it and I go right back. I forget it. I'm not mindful of what you've done. That pattern is my life. So we humble ourselves in confession and we say, God, please help me. I can't do this on my own. I need you, God. Confession brings a reorienting of our heart through repentance. A reorienting of our heart through repentance. Literally means to redirect our hearts. Confession will lead to repentance. Confession will lead to us turning from what we've done. That's what you see in Nehemiah if you keep reading. In chapter 10, they make a covenant with the Lord. In chapter 13, they make reforms in Israel based on their repentance. True confession leads to repentance. And true confession brings a renewal from the Spirit. A renewal that gives us rest from the effects of sin. When you and I confess... There is a renewing work, that cleansing work from 1 John 1 that is done in our souls. And He gives us rest from not just sin, which has already happened in our justification, but He gives us rest from the effects of sin. Now let me just say, that doesn't mean that you won't have consequences you have to walk out. Sometimes God will alleviate the consequences. Sometimes He won't. But He will give you rest from the effects of sin. Acts chapter 3, verse 19 and 20. Peter is preaching 
And He tells the crowd, repent and turn back that your sins may be blotted out and that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord. I talked about earlier how sin disrupts fellowship and it puts our churches and our families and our marriages in chaos. Some of us, we need the refreshing of repentance in our church, in our relationships, in our marriages, in our relationship with God, we have a promise from Him that if we'll confess and repent, He'll refresh. I was talking to a a brother this week who we were just talking about some recent confession of sin that he had done, and we were just talking about how that was going, and he just mentioned to me, just talking about it and asking for prayer has made me more mindful of it this week. I've not been perfect in it, But it's made me more mindful of it. It's made me more mindful to ask God for help. Confession does that. It refreshes us. Confession, as we just described it, where you reflect on the character of God, where you admit your own sin and its patterns, where you humble yourself and ask for His help, that confession invites the refreshment of the Lord into our relationships with Him and others. We need to practice confession because this is the antidote to living in secret, unrepentant sin. We need to confess to God and the Bible shows us there are times we need to confess to others. I'm not saying that every single time you sin, you need to have somebody on the phone telling you what you just did. That's going to be a pretty draining relationship and it's going to you probably just have to leave them on on the, on the line all day, right? But I will say this to you. If you have a temptation that is ongoing, whether that temptation is turning into sin or not, but if you have an ongoing temptation that you struggle with, somebody in your life needs to know about that. Somebody needs to know what you're dealing with and you need to offer them the opportunity to ask you about it so that they can give you help. Or so that at least you have done confession that it's not hidden. How often should we confess? I would say daily, because we sin daily. I think confession should be a part of our daily walk with Jesus. The Westminster Confession of Faith that we talk about here sometimes, the leaders that put that together, it's not a fallible, an infallible document, it's not the Word of God, but it is a helpful writing down of beliefs. And the Westminster Confession of Faith says this, although they can never fall from the state of justification, yet they may by their sins fall under God's fatherly displeasure and not have the light of His countenance restored to them until they humble themselves, confess their sins, beg His pardon, and renew their faith and repentance. So, Proverbs 28.13 says, Whoever conceals his transgressions will not prosper, but he who confesses and forsakes them will obtain mercy. Church, we are offered mercy in confession. Sam, you guys can come on up, whoever is coming from the worship team. Let me end with this life question that I want to allow to lead us into our time of ministry here at the end. You guys are welcome to bring the lights down. This life question is this, and I want to ask that you would pose this to yourself 
right now. Does my heart show evidence of clinging to Christ, my advocate, through daily confession of sin? Does my heart show evidence of clinging to Christ, my advocate, through a daily confession of sin? We can say we're clinging to Christ, we're holding to Christ. How do you know? One of the ways that you know is you see the evidence of confession. Continual reflection on God's character, admittance of your sin, humbling of yourself and asking for help. I want us to focus as we end today on Jesus. I want us to focus on the One who went to the cross that we could be justified. I hope you ask questions when you read Scripture. I hope you look for things that stand out to you. One of the things that should stand out to us is how in in verse 9 it says, if we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive. Not only is He faithful when we confess... But the Bible says it's the right thing for Him to do. It's the right, just thing for Him to forgive you. Why? Because if you're a believer, Jesus has already been punished for your sin. And God is a just God who will not punish two different people for the same thing. We're about to sing a song. All I have is Christ. Let me read you some of the lyrics. I once was lost in darkest night, yet thought I knew the way. The sin that promised joy in life had led me to the grave. I had no hope that you would own a rebel to your will. And if you had not loved me first, I would refuse you still. But as I ran my hell-bound race, indifferent to the cost, you looked upon my helpless state and led me to the cross. And I beheld God's love displayed. You suffered in my place. You bore the wrath reserved for me. And now all I know is grace. Let's worship today singing this together. I'm going to ask Kevin Small if he'll join me over here. If you have something going on in your relationship with Jesus you would like prayer for or your family, if you need healing, anything at all that you would like to come and speak to someone and be prayed for, Kevin and I will pray for you. My invitation to you is follow Jesus. Confess your sins to Him. Be baptized if you've never been baptized as a public display of your commitment to Christ. And then church, grow in your faith. Grow and keep growing. And the way that you grow is by abiding. And you abide partly through confession. If you're not going to, if you're not being prayed for up front this morning, if you're not wanting to just kneel and pray where you are. You can do that. You can come up and pray here. 
But let me invite us, if you're willing and able to stand, let's ponder the glory and the grace of Jesus. And from our hearts, with our voices, with enthusiasm, not from just external, but what we're singing is more exciting than sports. It's more exciting than anything else that I can't really think of in my head right now that would get you excited. I know it's not sports for everybody. But it's more exciting than anything else you would raise your voice to. So would you stand and would you sing? Would you come and be prayed for? Would you kneel? Would you confess? And would you be refreshed? Jesus, be with us. We need You. Help us. May Your name be lifted high in our hearts today. For those of us that lean to condemnation, free us knowing we've been justified. Those of us who lean toward flippancy, help us to confess and be refreshed. Save the lost. Bring back the wandering. Strengthen the sanctified. In Your name we ask these things. Amen.